If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to use one of ours. You'll find one from under one of the chairs in front of you. And you'll find our text on page 984. Page 984, Colossians chapter 3. Well, as we alluded to earlier, if you have been around here much, you will have noticed that things are looking and sounding a little bit different than what they usually do because we are celebrating Reformation Sunday this morning. And it's a time uh, for us to remember what God was doing in His church about 500 years ago, a work of renewing and reforming His people. So our gathering today is uh, modeled more like a service of that day with the songs that we have sung, at least thus far, uh, a little bit more like those that they would have sang. And it's important that we understand why we are doing this, why uh, why we make a deal of Reformation Sunday. It's not just because we love tradition. Tradition can be helpful. Uh, Tonight, as we will find out, tradition can be fun. But tradition can also be wrong. In fact, that's one of the the reasons why the Reformation took place. Therefore, we must always be thinking about our traditions, not just as a church, but individually. What are they teaching us? What are they reinforcing us? What are they teaching others, either directly or indirectly? Is it right or wrong? Does it line up with the Bible or doesn't it? We can never just give our traditions a pass. Furthermore, we're not celebrating Reformation Sunday because we hate the Catholic Church. Uh, This question comes up. All too often. It is true that during the time of the Reformation uh, and in the many decades leading up to it, the the church had degenerated in terms of its theology and its ministry and its moral character. Even the Catholic Church itself admits that because while Luther and others were seeking to reform in one way and were successful in that, the Catholic Church themselves had a response, an internal Reformation that took place as well along these lines. This is what the Reformation was all about, reforming the church. And although we love that reform that took place, it doesn't mean that we hate the Catholicism that remains. More than anything, we celebrate Reformation Sunday because ultimately the Reformation was about recovering the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was about stripping away the, 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 uh, the traditions that would, that would counter what the gospel was about, as well as getting rid of the false theology that, has built, that had built up around the Bible's teaching about how a holy God could make sinners right with himself. The Reformation was a time when the church was reformed, or as we'll talk about this morning, recalibrated according to Christ himself. And very often we take a, have a special sermon this morning, but really that, that idea of reformation, of being recalibrated or reformed according to Christ fits well with the message that we have in Colossians. Uh, tonight we're going to, in a much more informal way, with food and, and, and fun and maybe even a little bit of Lutheran dancing. No, I don't know about that. But uh, we, will, uh, we will talk about the Reformation. We'll draw out some, some practical lessons as well as uh, hopefully hear from some people 
who will come prepared to give us uh, some short little ditties on church history. And there will be time for questions. But this morning, we really want to focus in on God's Word in Colossians chapter 3. We want to think about this idea of recalibrating our lives according to the risen Christ. That's what Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians in the first century and telling them that they need to do. But before he tells them that, before he tells them, you need to recalibrate your life according to Christ. You need to, to reform your thinking and your living according to him. Notice this is in chapter 3, what's come before it. Well, chapters 1 and 2, right? And what has chapters 1 and 2 been all about? It's been all about the gospel. It's been all about Christ himself, who he is, what he has done for his people, and what the implications are for that work. So what I want us to do is really just almost rewind the clock. And, uh, and go through and think very specifically about these gospel truths that Paul has laid out so that when we come to the first few verses of chapter 3 and we hear this exhortation of recalibrating our life according to Christ, we'll see why we should and how we can recalibrate our lives. So let's think about this. According to Colossians 1 and 2, who is Christ? Who is Christ? Well, Paul tells us several things here, and this is essentially uh, a very massive bullet point list. If you don't want to write all these things down, just read through the first two chapters. But if you want the bullet point list, you can uh, email me or Facebook me and we'll get that to you. First of all, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. The P is the perfect revelation of the Almighty. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, he is preeminent over all creation. He created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Paul says if it was made, Christ made it. He is the one for whom all things were made. He is before all things. That is to say, he has existed before them and he has supremacy over them. He is the one in whom all things hold together. He is the head of the church. It's it's, it's source of, of direction and authority and life. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is preeminent in everything. In Him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. He is the focus of God's mysterious work of redemption. In Him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the head of all rule and authority. He is the very substance of all the shadows of the old covenants. That's who Christ is. What has He has done? Well, He has done this for His people. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints and light. That is, to receive eternal life with God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to His own beloved kingdom. He has brought us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He has reconciled us to God, making peace by the blood of His cross. He has worked to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before God. He continually, powerfully works within us as we struggle and toil to serve Him. He has made it possible for us to be filled with Him with spiritual life. He has circumcised our hearts. We have been buried with Him in baptism and He has spiritually raised us from the dead. We have, He has made us alive with Him. He has forgiven all of our trespasses. He canceled the record of sin, debt, that stood against us before God by nailing it to His cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame and triumphed over them through the cross. He caused us to die to evil, to the world, to sin, to the spiritual forces of this world when we died with Him on the cross. Now, if we believe that's who Christ is, if we believe that is what He has done for His people, what are the implications? The implications are this. We can be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
We can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We can be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. We can fully please Him with our life. We can bear fruit in every good work. We can endure life struggles with patience and joy. We can give thanks to God the Father. We can have encouraged hearts which are, which are knit together in love. We can reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God. We can escape being deluded with persuasive arguments of false teaching. We can demonstrate a good order of life and a firmness of faith. We can walk in Christ. We can be rooted in Him and built up in Him. We can be established in the faith. We can abound in thanksgiving. We can escape captivity by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. We are free from the judgment of others. We are free from disqualification of our life with God because of the religious expectation of others. That's who Christ is. That's what he has done. And that is the implications for our lives as Paul has laid them out in chapters 1 and 2. In other words, Paul has shown in those chapters both the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. All of these things are true about him and what he has done for his people is true for everyone who looks to him in faith as Savior and Lord Thus, Christ alone becomes the person by whom, should be the person by whom, we recalibrate our lives. If we have looked to him in faith, then all of these things are possible for us. And we should be looking to him for reform and recalibration. In that sense, all of us are like my car. You say, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Uh, you know, the car is new enough that it has one of these digital displays and it tells you all kinds of helpful information, but frankly, it's not put together well and that it's hard to navigate once you get in and actually try and do some serious things other than just check your, you know, your, uh, your mileage and your, your odometer and your fuel economy and these other things. And one time I was trying to reset the oil change gauge, you know, it tells you, uh, what percentage, you know, of life you have left before you need to change your oil. And I got into this program that was meant to recalibrate the compass in my car and I couldn't get out unless I unless I finished doing the setup you know what the setup was drive slowly in small circles so here I am in Walmart parking lot you know dun 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 feeling like a complete idiot but that's what I had to do in order to get this thing reset so when it says north I really am going north and not like northeast or or northwest or something And the reality of our life is such that often our moral and spiritual compass is in great need of recalibration. Because we have so allowed the world to influence us, north does not point north. What is right and what is wrong does not line up with our thinking and our living and our loving. Instead of loving what God loves, we love what the world loves. Instead of thinking God's thoughts after him, we think the world's thoughts. The result is a life that doesn't honor God and doesn't bring us joy in him. Therefore, we need a recalibration of our lives. We need a reset to the true spiritual north that is Christ himself. And we need this for our church, for our theology, for our very lives. And friends, that's what the Reformation was all about. It was, it was recalibrating the church, both as an institution, both in terms of what it taught, and of those, who, those individuals who made up the church. It was reorienting them towards Christ. And Paul tells the Colossians in the opening chapters of, 
uh, or the opening verses of chapter 3 here, that that's what they need to do, and he shows them how to do it. So this is what we want to see this morning, because it's not just important for the Colossians, it's important for us as well. Look at Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of God. Now notice the order in which Paul has given us the instruction. Again, he didn't just tell us, look, get your life in order, get yourself straightened out, uh, sit up, fly right. No, first, what did he do in chapters 1 and 2? He told us the gospel. He told us who Christ is and what he did to save sinners from the judgment they deserve by, by bringing them to God with forgiveness of sins. And that's essential for us to get. The, in the Bible, God always gives salvation before he commands sanctification. In other words, God never says, be holy and so be saved. What he says is, I have saved you, therefore be holy. We see that not just in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well. Go back and, and look at the Ten Commandments. You've got all these commands to be holy, but what's the first thing that he says? I am the Lord your God who redeemed you from slavery in Egypt, therefore Command one, two, three, four, five. He says, I gave you salvation. I brought you to myself. I made you my people. Therefore, act like my people. And that's always the pattern in the Bible. God first saves. He redeems. He forgives. He brings us to himself. And then he says, live in keeping with the reality of who you are as my people. And so this morning, we began with the gospel. And now we begin again with this appeal. Look to Christ in faith. You may be here and you may not be a Christian. We've seen how Christ has done everything imaginable to set us free from our sins and bring us to God. He is worthy of trusting to be our Savior, knowing we cannot save ourselves. So we would encourage you, turn away from a life of trying to make it on your own. Turn away of life of just living for yourself. And live for God and do it by faith in Christ. Trust that he is going to be the Savior that makes you right with God. And more than that, who gives you the ability to live a life that is pleasing to God. But for those of you who are Christians, the appeal is the same. Look to Christ in faith. Remember the gospel you have already believed and now purpose to live a life that reflects that gospel message. Trust Christ so that your life can be recalibrated to him and not to anything else. But again, the question is, how do we do this? We start with faith, but then what do we actually do? How does the recalibration take place? Paul tells us, and he tells us to do three things. First, we are to recalibrate our lives by seeking the things above with Christ. Recalibrate your life by seeking the things above with Christ. Isn't that pretty much exactly what he says in, in verse 1? If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He begins with the phrase, if you have been raised with Christ. Now that's language of the resurrection. Well, the Colossians aren't dead. They haven't died and come back to life. What's he talking about? Well, it's not resurrection in the physical sense, but it is resurrection in the spiritual sense. 
Paul tells them when they put their faith in Christ, their life was united to Christ. Spiritually, Christians have a union with Jesus Christ and therefore know the power of his resurrection. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to verses 3 and 4. But for now, the, the point that Paul is trying to make is this. The Colossians should live differently than the false teachers who were troubling them because all of their life should be oriented to, toward Christ who is in heaven, not here and on this earth. And what we saw back in chapter 2, and you can look at it again to refresh yourself later, is that it's the things of this earth that occupy the thinking of these false teachers who were trying to get the Colossians to add something to Christ. It was... Old covenant holidays, certain foods and certain drinks that they should or shouldn't partake of. It was a focus on human wisdom and human experience. And Paul says, as God's people, your life should not be driven by those things. Why? Because, first of all, he said, remember, they're powerless to actually produce any spiritual growth in you. But more than that here, more importantly, we shouldn't be driven by the things of this world because our life is not wrapped up in the things of this world. We have been raised with Christ. Our life is in heaven with him. Therefore, our life should be oriented towards him. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. If you are a Christian, there is a certain heavenly status to your life. That status should be the guidepost then for all of our living and thinking. All that we do should be oriented toward who we are in Christ in the heavenly places. You know, in just a few months when we go to Africa, the, the team's goal is to, for lots of reasons, is to blend in as much as possible. We have spent time learning a little bit of, of their language. When we go there, we will be eating their food. We will be dressing in their clothes. We'll be abiding by their customs. But the reality is we're never going to really feel at home there. I mean, maybe if we lived there for 10 years or for 20 years or for 30 years, we would actually start to feel African in our orientation. But the reality is, for the, for the two weeks we're going to be there, we're not going to feel at home. We're still going to feel like Americans. That's our default way of thinking. It's our, our default way of living. And the reality is, for us, is that in this world, we should always feel out of place and different. We should always feel like we don't quite fit in because our values, our loves, our lives should not be rooted in the here and now, but in the age that is to come and is already present with Christ in heaven and God. But that's not where we live, is it? We feel far too much at home, if you're anything like me. I find myself thinking very much as if this world is, is where my life is wrapped up. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that we, you know, we hit the eject button and we go off in a commune somewhere and we always kind of huddle around and sing Kubaya and eat cans for the rest of our life. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, there is a reality in which we live, but, but, does, but does this world shape us to the degree that our priorities are found in this world? That, 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 that our thinking and our living and our loving is all about what we see here and not who we are in Christ because we are seated with him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, because our life is united to his, we should feel more like travelers on a journey, or better yet, ambassadors in a foreign land, than people who, who, who are comfortable and at home here. 
Paul says the world should not be our guidepost. Who we are in Christ should be our guidepost. But the world doesn't make it easy for us, does it? I mean, after all, it appeals to our flesh, our sinful nature. Thus, a big part of us wants to feel at home here. A big part of us enjoys fitting in and not feeling odd. It feels good to give in to things like anger and pride and lust until the guilt sets in. And so there is this constant pressure to conform. And Paul says, don't do that. Be constantly resetting, recalibrating your life according to Christ and not the things of this world. Paul says we have to remember who we are in him and resist being shaped to and anchored in this world. We are to be active in seeking the things above. Now that's a, that's a general command and it's a good command, but Paul gets more specific in the next verse. And here we see the, fact, the second thing that we should do. There should not just be a general orientation towards the things above, but Paul says we should recalibrate our lives by setting our mind on the things above. So you should recalibrate your, uh, your life by setting your mind on the things above with Christ. That's what, again, that's what exactly what he says in verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, the, in, the, in the original context of the letter, Paul was almost probably uh, uh, digging at the false teachers here. Because, as we saw last week, these guys weren't all that concerned with the word of God. They sought out visions by depriving their body of food and drink. And these things have led many scholars and pastors to believe that what they were driven by was an experience, not truth. So they would say, you know, uh, let me be woozy and disoriented and, and, and have this vision of an angel talking to me. And I'll feel spiritual. I'll feel really spiritual. Uh, let me sing a song 50 times until I have this great emotional experience of the sense of rapture. And I'll feel really spiritual. And Paul says, that's not, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Real spiritual emotions and maturity in emotions derive from real spiritual thinking. The affections are meant to, to come out of right thinking about things. So when, we, so when we understand correctly right and wrong, we see something that is wrong and revulsion is the emotion that comes. If we understand right and wrong, then we see something that is right and good and joy and happiness should be the emotion that comes. And it's the same with our thinking with God. Paul says, Paul says intimacy with God does not come through vague experiences. It comes through a deep knowledge of God, which inevitably, inevitably moves our affections toward deep love in Him. How do you do this, though? Paul says you do it by setting your mind on the things above. You think about the things that are above. Now understand, it's not an either-or. This goes back to what I said earlier. It's not as if we say we can never think about the things of this earth. I think what Paul's getting at is the question of priority. When, when, after a, a long day at work and you just you, you, know, you crash on the couch, on the chair, in the bed, what, are, what is the thing your thoughts immediately default to? What are the things that you immediately begin to think about? Is it the things of the world or the things of Christ? When you, when you have a conversation... With your friends at the restaurant or the coffee shop or the ice cream shop or here before and after church. What do your conversations default to? Is it the things of the world or is it the things of Christ? These are simple questions that help us know the priority of where we're at and what kind of working we need to do to get to where Paul wants us to be. We can't simply ignore what's going on around us and have no part in that. I'm not saying you can't ever enjoy good cooking or play sports or listen to music or whatever. What I'm saying is, what is the priority and direction of our life? Is it, 
Is it toward the things of God or is it toward the things of this world? Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul gives us even a little bit of instruction. In fact, a very practical bit of instruction on, on what to be thinking about. I think, you know, some people will say, well, he, he means Christ. And I certainly think that's true. But I think it's also a, a kind of grid in terms of where we focus our thinking when it comes to the things of this world. Philippians 4, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So think about what that's saying to us then. The kind of newspaper you read, the kind of articles that you seek out first, the kind of television shows that we that we enjoy the kind of movies we go to, the pages on the internet that we, that we like to look at and think about, does it measure up to this list? Is this the reality of our thinking? Do we seek out what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and excellent and righteous? Is that the kind of things that we're setting our minds on? Or have we allowed the world to, to, to begin to reset and mold our thinking so that it's the opposite? It's the things of, of sin and evil and degradation. Several years ago, I had some people invite me over to watch a movie, and it was not high drama or anything. It wasn't Shakespeare or... You know, something off the BBC. It was just a popcorn action movie. And uh, the plot was okay, but it was interesting because at the end of this film that was, uh, frankly, filled with profanity, this, this guy looks at me and he says, it doesn't matter what goes in, just what comes out, right? And I don't know what to say because, you know, uh, I was only in college at the time, but it was not long from my childhood days growing up on uh, the, the, the Christian music group Petra's song, Computer Brains. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about, and others of you, you teenagers, you have no idea, you don't know nothing, you don't know nothing about that. So, so that's old school. And, and, but he, here's what they sing, okay? 1980s. Everything that you do and see, one more event in your memory. Every bit takes another bite without control over wrong or right. You must screen every entry made. The consequences must be weighed. The only way to security is every thought in captivity. And then, of course, the, the chorus, computer brains, put garbage in, computer brains, get garbage out. And that's what I grew up thinking. If you're going to put garbage in your head, then garbage is going to come out. You're going to think garbagey thoughts, you're going to say garbagey things, and you're going to, th- and you're going to look at the world with a garbagey tent. So when this guy said that, I wanted to say, no, <laughs> you're wrong. And frankly, after reading Colossians 3 and Philippians 4, I think Petra was closer to Paul than my friend was. What you think about matters. So go home today and think about what you've got running through your mind. What is getting the priority of your time and your mental energy? Is it the things of God from his word? Or is it the things of this world that are the priority? Is it the things of evident righteousness or the things of rampant and obvious sin? Depending on how you, how you answer that question, it's going to help you know just how much of a recalibration you need by the risen Christ. How often, how frequently, how intense you go after him to begin remolding, reframing, resetting, reprogramming, recalibrating your way of life to him and not to the things of this world. If you want to do that, then you'll be setting your mind on the things above, even as you seek the things above. All the while, thirdly and lastly, you will recalibrate your life by the security of your future above with Christ. 
you'll recalibrate by the security of your future above with Christ. As is typical of Paul, he not only bases his call to action on the first two chapters of gospel truth, but he also gives us an immediate reason for obedience. Command is always grounded in the gospel. He says, seek the things above, set your minds on the things above. Why? Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul makes another reference again to our union with Christ. In fact, that's a, that's a strong topic for him, a, a strong uh, theology for him in this letter. And this time, it's not just about us being raised with him spiritually, but about our death with him spiritually. If we have faith in Christ, then we have been united to Christ's death. You know, for the Christian, the death of Christ, the, 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 the cross of Christ, it could never be sterilized into being just a church decoration. It can never be reduced to just a piece of jewelry that we hang around our neck or an emblem that we, we, we put on our car. Christ died a violent death reserved for criminals. The cross was a gruesome means of execution. It was meant to be a shocking thing, not only to the Romans of the first century, but even as the Christians talked about Christ ruling and reigning from the cross, it was meant to be a shocking theology for the culture of the first century in Rome. Remember what Paul has said about Christ. Think about it afresh. He is God in the flesh. The fullness of deity dwells in him. As God, he created everything. He created everything for him. Everything is meant to honor him and to give him glory. He is set above as the, as the first and greatest of everything. But what did he do? Though perfectly righteous, he never told a white lie. He never had that kind of angry, rebellious thought against his parents in his teenage years. He never did anything wrong. And yet he willingly allowed himself to be strung up and killed between two thieves on a Roman cross. The cross was the Roman equivalent of the electric chair. It was a means of public execution that was meant not only to punish crime, but to deter crime. Why in the world was Jesus Christ on a cross? The question makes no sense until you understand why he came to this world. Until you understand the great love that God has for sinners. He was on that cross because of us. He was on that cross because we deserve to be on that cross. He was on that cross because we deserve the wrath of God, and yet he took it for us. Not because of our crimes against Rome or any other country, but for our sinful rebellion and crimes against God himself. Pastor David Fairchild says this, The death of Christ upon the cross was both the most horrific act of, act of judgment and yet the most loving act of grace. It was the clearest demonstration of God's hatred for sin, and yet the most profound expression of God's love for those who call upon him. It is ugly and disgusting, and yet beautiful. It is shameful, and yet the way Christ was to receive honor and glory. It is the most torturous act of agony, and yet the most comforting act of peace. It stands as a sign of terror, and yet as a declaration of security. To say that we have died is to say that we identify with what occurred upon the cross, and we look at our old self as dead. It is the greatest of paradoxes for you and I. We must confess that in order for us to live, we must have died. And if we have died with Jesus, then and only then will we have life hidden with Christ in God. 
If we put our faith in Christ, then as Christ people, as Christians, we have died to the things of this world and to sin and to anything else that would keep us with God. And yet, because Christ has raised from the dead and we are raised with him, as he already said in verse 1, then we have triumphed over sin, death, hell, everything, everything that would keep us from God. Our life is secure, though now hidden with Christ. In other words... It's not exactly obvious that our life is secure with Christ and triumph over these things, is it? I mean, I mean, you know, it, it's not like you walk into a restaurant and there's this, this beaming light hanging over a few faces. You say, oh, they're Christians. You know, it doesn't work that way, does it? And yet Paul says one day it will. One day it will. One day what is hidden will now be revealed not just to us, but to the whole world. When Christ comes in glory to judge the world, we will be revealed in glory with him. And on that day, everything that we have believed and hoped for will be realized in Christ. Thus, the Christian hope is not merely just the coming of Christ to end things. That is it. But part of the hope is the full realization of the salvation we have in him. The full realization of this process of recalibration. Finished. Fully, finally, always pointing toward Christ and His righteousness. Our own faces reflecting the glory of the face of our Savior. When that reality grips us, it becomes a source of rest and security for us now. So that we can fight against the world. We can resist conformity to its image. We can, with joy and love, look to Christ and allow ourselves, sometimes painfully, to be recalibrated towards him. Martin Luther is recognized as the great fountainhead of the Reformation. Things were happening, and yet it was most dramatically through him that God brought clarity about the gospel and the implications of the gospel for the church. Luther said this, This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. So what did that mean for Luther? It meant this. When the devil throws your sin in your face, he says, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, he says. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, I shall be also. Loved ones, as you think about that reality now, allow your heart and your mind to constantly be refocused, retold, recalibrated toward the risen Christ. That even now, our lives can be reflective of who we will be and where we will be on the final day. Father, we are so thankful for Christ and for his work of salvation in our lives. We are thankful that, that though we still have this sin nature that we struggle against, you have given us a new nature through your spirit. You have given us him that allows us to be freed from sin, free from, from slavery to it, so we can, we can say no and fight against it and live lives that please you. But Father, we don't do this in our own strength. We don't do this under our own power. We do it. Through Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to look to him. That we would always be seeking God. To remind ourselves of the great truths of who he is. And what he has done for us. And the freedom that comes when we look to him in faith. 
and God based upon that gospel truth than to press on hard in godliness. Setting our minds on the things above where Christ is. Setting our whole lives towards Him. God, we pray that you would do all of these things for the great glory of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.